Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So welcome to the Rocks Pile Rockies Report. My name is Kevin Henry. I'm one of the co-editors for Rocks Pile, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we decided to reach out to some of the uh, journalists who are in the Rockies community to talk to us about uh, some baseball things, since obviously we don't have baseball to watch or to talk about at the moment, and we're hoping that that ends soon. Uh, but one of the guys that I, I miss seeing in the press box and talking with uh, before and after uh, player interviews and Bud Black interviews is our friend Jack Etkin, uh, who currently writes for Forbes. Jack, how are you? Kevin, I'm well. It's nice to hear your voice. I'm sorry uh, we're not at the ballpark uh, chewing the fat with sunflower seeds around us. There may never be sunflower seeds again. That's true. You know, one of those things that could change. And uh, I don't even want to think about that a world like that, but it's very possible. You're exactly right. Well, Jack does some great work, and make sure you check him out on Forbes.com. Uh, he also has a, a Twitter account if you're not following him. And uh, I think it's just Jack, uh, at Jack Epkin, isn't it, uh, Jack? You know, I think so. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a big social media person, and I don't tend to converse back and forth and opine so much as this toss-up stuff that I might have written. So. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I, I was hoping you and I could talk about today is you have been covering the Rockies since their inception. Correct. And, you know, would you mind just kind of sharing some of the stories with our listeners that you've shared with me about how that came to be in kind of those early days of covering them and what that was like? Yeah, I can, I don't, this may be a little longer than you want, but uh, you and I both have time today. Um, we <laughs> Tracy Ringlesby had been hired by the Rocky Mountain News in, I believe, April of 1992. And Tracy and I had worked together at the Kansas City Star for, oh, a few years. And then he went on to the Dallas Morning News and then was hired by the Rocky Mountain News. And uh, he was hired in advance of the expansion draft, which was in November of 92, with the intent that there was going to be a second person to uh, help him uh, with the baseball coverage. Trace and I knew each other. We'd worked well together in Kansas City. Um, he reached out to me, and uh, I ultimately ended up joining him. I remember I was still in Kansas City in, like, early January in 93, and I was working for the uh, Kansas City Star on a Friday, and the following Monday I was working uh, working on stories for the uh, Rocky Mountain News um, before coming out here just before the first spring training. Um, and uh, one one thing that comes to mind is just nearly not Rocky-centric, but we were doing stories that uh, could only be done in the first year, sort of introducing... Uh, and this is probably a little presumptuous of us from introducing the readers to Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. Never mind, there'd been Triple A baseball here for a long, long time. And I do remember uh, we were going to do a story on kind of cutting up the uh, lineup. Uh, what do you want from a number one hitter all the way down to number eight? And we uh, divided the pie such as it was. And I remember one of the assignments I had was the number seven hitter. And I called up Merv Rettenen, who was a delightful guy. He was uh, a longtime hitting coach 
back with the A's in the late 80s when uh, Walt Weiss was coming up there and uh, he was in San Diego at the time when I when I called him and I I said Merv here's the here's what I want to talk to you about we're doing Tracy and I are doing this uh, sort of profile of a lineup and you know I've got to talk about the number seven hitter and the uh, duties and the responsibilities and what you look for and Merv began by saying the number seven hitter isn't that usually, a, isn't that a guy that you're usually looking to trade? <laughs> anyway, I do remember that. That's had nothing to do per se with the Rockies. First spring training was pretty interesting. We were in uh, High Corbett Field in Tucson mm-hmm. where the Indians had trained for years. And I believe there were like 63 people in spring training, one of whom was uh, uh, a veteran pitcher who did not have a lot left. His name was Bryn Smith. And he came up with the idea of handing out name tags, you know, hi, my name is, and then you need uh, Sharpie, put your, your name tag. That's how crowded it was. But it spoke to the fact that, you know, all these people came from wherever, um, different organizations. So it wasn't like everybody knew everybody. Um, and uh, uh, that, was, that was something that I remember also interviewing Bryn Smith for a story. He was living in a trailer park. Um, down near uh, Interstate 10 in, in, in Tucson. And um, Brent Smith is best known for, in my mind, for two things. Um, he pitched the home opener against uh, the Expos, mm-hmm. which uh, is kind of renowned for Eric Young leading off that game with a home run off of Kent Bottenfield, who later became a Rocky. And uh, Bryn Smith, who really has very little left, he was in his late 30s, he, he pitched, I, well, I want to say seven innings. It was not a close game, but he pitched exceedingly well. And I remember one of the last games he pitched, we were in Cincinnati, and he got released in June. And so this was shortly before that, a couple, three starts before he got released, but uh, the writing was on the wall. It was just painful to watch him pitch. He pitched, I don't have a line in front of me, Kevin, but he, he needed approximately 50 to 55 pitches to get four outs. Oh, boy. It was, it, was, uh, it, was not, it was not nice at all. But the first year, I mean, the central figure of the first year was really Don Baylor, who was a manager, yeah. of course, and uh, whom I knew from uh, my days in Kansas City when he was in the American League. And uh, just got to know him as a visiting player. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man. And, uh, you know, the, the intent, this is different than when the Diamondbacks came into the league and soon after they came into the league, which was in 98, you know, they've gone out and got Luis Gonzalez and Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling and kind of broken the mold for an expansion team. Um, that's not what the Rockies did. Um, and so really the aim, never really spoken, was two things. Um, one of them was not lose 100 games. And they succeeded. They lost 95, but they had to sprint to the end to do that. And the other was to uh, uh, be respected as a baseball team. You know, Don was a was a guy who uh, was a kind of a no nonsense guy, much gruffer externally from afar than he actually was. He was a very compassionate man, but you know he wanted to make sure that uh, this team carried itself with respect, acted like they were professionals, and and got the respect of their opponents. Um, all of which sounds um, pretty basic and fundamental and, and uh, uh, not something that should even be mentioned, but it, uh, it was you know, sort of one of the bedrocks, if you will, that first season in 1993. 
The other thing I remember that comes to mind quickly is we opened the season in New York at Shea Stadium. Dwight Gooden was pitching, and he was he was in the twilight, but he uh, he wasn't done. But he wasn't as far in the twilight as Brent Smith was. And uh, the game was two to nothing. The Mets won the game. Um, I think he threw a com complete game. Uh, again, I I may be wrong, but I'm not wrong by more than an inning. Um, and David Need started for the Rockies, and he was the uh, first draft choice, uh, first pick in the expansion draft. Who came from the uh, came from the Braves? Very very nice fella. Um, was really kind of overmatched at, at being slotted as first in the rotation, but you know didn't complain. You know drew a lot of poor matchups um, when you're still drawing the number one starter from the other team before the uh, pitching rotations get uh, uh, kind of shaken up by rainouts and things like that. But I just remember watching the. Uh, Rockies get introduced along the uh, third baseline. This is opening day. I believe it was April 5th of, uh, of 93 at Shea Stadium. And, uh, you know, we'd come out of, uh, come out of, uh, of uh, Tucson. Team went to Minnesota, actually, for a uh, final exhibition game. I think Tracy went there. I, didn't, I know I didn't go there and uh, went out to New York. And actually, in Minnesota's where Dale Murphy joined the team, Bob Gephardt, the general manager, um, picked him up. Uh, Murphy had 398 home runs, and uh, mm -hmm. the hope was that he could be something of a veteran presence, hit a couple more fly balls in altitude that would give him 400. Um, he was in very serious decline in his career at that point. I mean, his heyday with Atlanta had been several years before. He'd been kind of scuffling with the Phillies. But... Getting back to my point, I mean, I remember having a lump in my throat when the Rockies were introduced, um, and I thought that was uh, it was an emotional moment, obviously, as I describe it. And it's not like I had lived here for years and years and years to uh, be teased and tantalized by the prospect of Major League Baseball. I mean, I, I was new to the area. I really hadn't been in the area. I'd been in Arizona, and um, but had been around this organization, and it was... Uh, it was momentous to see. It really, it really was. And they played the Rockies played two games in New York, lost them both. Brett Saberhagen, who ultimately uh, became a Rocky briefly at the trade deadline in 1995, and whom I knew from uh, following him and covering him in Kansas City, he pitched the second game. I don't recall what the score was, but Dante Bichette hit a homer, which was the first one in club history. Although he's far better known for the. Uh, Homer he hit in the 14th inning, uh, the first game at Coors Field. Yeah, I believe that was April 26th of 95, which was uh, when the season started then because the player strike uh, precluded the normal beginning of the season. So anyway, that's a, a memory or two from, from 93. Um, I do remember we were, uh, we were in San Diego there was a doubleheader that was being played, and Tony Gwynn hit a ball up the middle off of Bruce Ruffin, and it was Tony's 2,000th hit. Um, Tony, of course, went on to uh, to get 3,000 hits, and had the uh, he had the good fortune to get 3,000 hits. He had the misfortune to get it in a night game in Montreal, where there weren't a lot of people there at that time. So uh, um, that was unfortunate, but. Uh, of course, what's more important is Tony, who's a wonderful guy, is no longer with us. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, but I do remember that the team was really kind of scuffling then. I might have gone going through a long losing streak of about 10 or 11 games. They went from San Diego to Los Angeles and amazingly swept four games from the Dodgers, which uh, was kind of the beginning of the sort of the last six-week sprint of when they played well and averted losing 100 games. Yeah. So I'm, I'm rambling on here, so I'll let oh, you interject. No, it, it's good because, you know, these are the kind of stories I love to hear you and Tracy and, you know, uh, whenever you guys talk to Buddy uh, in the dugout, you all are sharing names and stories. I just love to sit back and listen to it. You know, but one thing I, I wanted to just ask you because, you know, you talked about how that you were going to introduce Major League Baseball to the Denver area. And, and you had, you know, you talked about the lump in your throat and, and, and everything else. What was the sense of excitement around Denver during that time in the buildup toward that first game uh, at Mile High? I, 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 can't, I can't say for sure because I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. But from everything I've been told and from stories that I've done, um, it, was, uh, it, it was really immense. And the Rockies' office was in a building on 17th Street. And it's a bank building, I believe. So, you know, they didn't have too many people on staff and, uh, you know, people were sending in uh, money for tickets and it was really a skeletal operation. Yeah. But there was a, this sort of uh, this sense that this yearning, this hunger had been ended and people were going to uh, finally get to see Major League Baseball. And, and the interest is, of course, borne out by the fact that the first two years of Mile High Stadium, they drew over four million people. Absolutely. I'm not sure they drew over four million the second year, because the strike hit on, I believe, August 11th. But they drew like 4.4 million people the first year, which was a record that, um, you know, it's kind of like Cal Ripken's consecutive games (laughs) record. I don't think it's going to get broken. Um, And it was just amazing. You'd go out there and and mile high, and and there'd be. It wasn't unusual to see 70, 75,000 people there. Um, You know that. It's not like that happened every night, but they were drawing you know, fifty thousand people on average every night, and it was uh, it was pretty remarkable. Well, and, and I want to ask because uh, you mentioned it with with the Dale Murphy signing, and you know, hoping that he could hit a couple of fly balls at altitude. You know, was the and I'll say mile high factor slash altitude factor was that talked about? like from the very start as much as it seems to be right now? Well, no, I don't think it was. And, and the sense I get from people that, you know, were here when the, the Bears and the Zephyrs were playing is that it was never talked about um, by media, by players, particularly pitchers. Um, it was really not a, a big topic of discussion early on. Um, I, can do, I do remember the Braves beat the Rockies in however many games they played that year, like 13 games. And the Braves were very good. They uh, they won 104 games that year. There were there was no um, uh, wild card or anything like that. Uh, and the Giants were second in the NL West, which there were no central divisions, so there were divisions were different. But I mean, the, the Giants won 103 games and they went home. Um, but the Braves were exceptionally good. And I remember a, an afternoon game here when Willie Blair was pitching and Joe Girardi was catching. And uh, um, Sid Bream uh, for the Braves, left-handed hitter, if I recall, uh, hit a fly ball not terribly far from the uh, left field line. And it looked like just a fly ball. Yeah. It landed in the seats. 
and the bases were loaded and it was a grand slam. And, and you know, that was an indication of uh, nobody talking about altitude so much as, you know, just uh, what could happen in, in a, you know, in a ballpark at altitude um, and particularly where uh, the dimensions down the line in left field in particular weren't that deep. I can I can tell you one wonderful Dale Murphy story. I mean, I would love it. Sure. he came here with the reputation of being, you know, he was a two-time MVP. He was drafted as a catcher, became a very good center fielder. Um, just a wonderful human being, you know, kind to everybody. Um, and was with the Rockies for about six weeks. They ultimately released him in uh, late May. Uh, it just wasn't happening for him. We were in Houston. And uh, I recall that uh, Tracy and I were um, staying at a hotel across from the team hotel. And uh, at the time, Mike Swanson was the PR director. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he reached out to one or both of us. I mean, this is you know, pre-internet, pre-text, pre-cell phone, any of that stuff. But the call sort of came quickly to uh, come over to a little ballroom which had been kind of uh just rockies basically rented the space but there was nothing in there uh, it, was a, it was a place to meet and there was dale murphy there was bob gephardt there was don baylor there was mike swanson there were a couple mm-hmm. writers and i came over tracy was busy writing his sunday notes package so yeah. probably on a thursday and then we we're going to go to the astrodome for the game um and uh, i had been uh on, on an elliptical machine and when I got the call to uh, go over I quickly showered and ran across the street it's one of those things sometimes if you've worked out and you're showered too quickly and you're trying to settle into normal life you're still sweating yeah so there, there I was um, you know looking like I had uh, you know just run a half marathon and Murphy retired and uh, you know said whatever he said and Nice things were said about him by Bob Gephardt and uh, Dale Murphy uh, by, and Don Baylor. And I went down, again, I'm dating myself here. I went down into the uh, area near the hotel's front desk. Back then, hotels had pay phones, and there was a little room with about six pay phones. And uh, I was got on the pay phone to call the paper and tell them that this had happened, and we're going to go to the ballpark, and I'll write about it and just to apprise them of... Um, what was going on so they could uh, plan their uh, layout and pages accordingly. And I'm on a phone uh, and like diagonally across from me, Murphy's on a phone. Oh, wow. And he says to me, where's Tracy? And I said, well, you know, he's, he, he's, he's coming. And he said, uh, tell him I want to say goodbye. I said, okay. Oh. So I finished on the phone. Murphy was still on the phone. Tracy had agreed to pick me up in front of the hotel and I go out to the to the to the car and I said come in here somebody wants to see you and Tracy says we don't have time to screw around we got to get to the ballpark um you know get in the car I said no you get out of the car you come in here somebody wants to see you so he um follows me into the lobby of the hotel to the uh, room where the phone banks are and there's Murph on the phone wanting to say goodbye to Tracy. And you wow. have to realize that we weren't around this guy in spring training to really get to know him because uh, the, the Rockies acquired him literally the, 
day or two before the season started. And whatever we wrote about him couldn't have been terribly positive because he didn't do very well. <laughs> but it speaks to the kind of person he was that he wanted to say goodbye um, to a writer who, uh, you know, he knew for six weeks. Um, that stands out as uh, sort of uh, emblematic of the type of person Dale Murphy is. So, Jack, uh, you know, you, you talk about Don Baylor, and, and I think that maybe more recent or, or younger Rockies fans don't realize the, what an impact he had and how integral he was to the Rockies in those early days and their, their success. Yeah, he was a commanding presence. I mean, physically imposing um, and, uh, you know, had earned a reputation on and off the field in his days in the American League as a, uh, as a, as a fine hitter. I mean, he came up as an outfielder and he came up and he could run, but he hurt his arm and he became a uh, superb designated hitter. He was an AL MVP in 1976. He was also very integral in the labor movement uh, as a uh, American League representative. And this is back when there were sort of ongoing labor wars. Um, but when Baylor came here, he was he was the face of the franchise. Um, you know, this was a collection of people from wherever. And um, I was... Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, Andres Galarraga was the first Rockies hero. He won the batting title in, uh, in, in 93. Baylor was instrumental in his coming here. He uh, signed as a, as a free agent. Baylor had been the hitting coach in uh, St. Louis in, in uh, 92, where it looked like uh, Galarraga was on his last legs, um, just hitting terribly. And, uh, Baylor actually found him crying after under the stands after one game and um, had enough you know coaching instinct to uh, uh, realize that this is the time he's going to be most susceptible to my suggestions. And the suggestion that he made was that he opened up his stance uh, mm-hmm. dramatically um, and uh, closed it as the pitch came to him. And it was a it was adjustment that vaulted Galarraga into an, uh, an NL batting title. Mm. And when Baylor, Baylor's last year here was uh, 98, he was fired at the end of that season. Um, Bob Gephardt was convinced that uh, Jim Leland, who'd been in Florida, were, they were uh, uh, won a title in 97 and then were terrible in 98 when Wayne Hazenga sold off the team. Uh, or had Dave Dombrowski, the general manager, sell off the team or trade off the team. Um, but Baylor went on to be the hitting coach for the Braves in 99. Chipper Jones was the MVP that year and gives Baylor a lot, a lot of credit to making him into a formidable, potent right-handed hitter, um, which is obviously the side that Chipper's going to hit less being a, being a, uh, a, uh, switch hitter. But Jones Chipper tells the story of, you know, Baylor said, you know, you're, you're the number three hitter for the Atlanta Braves who were in the midst of their stretch of winning 14 straight division titles. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to be able to do damage from both sides of the plate. Well, it's not that easy, but they worked on uh, Chipper's right-handed swing and approach, and he became a uh, much better hitter from that side and and won the MVP that year. So I really can't say enough about Don Baylor. As I said earlier, I got to know him. Yeah. Um, as a uh, visiting player when I was in Kansas City and, you know, would see him when uh, he was playing in Anaheim then. 
would see him when we would uh, go out there. And you know, at the end of his career, he he moved around, but everywhere he moved to, they won. He was with the uh, Red Sox in '86. They went to the World Series. Um, he was with the uh, Twins in '87. They went to the World Series and won it. And he was with the A's in his last year in '88. And uh, they too went to the World Series. So he he had an aura about him. Um, and, uh, just, uh, commanded respect from everybody. I remember during the, uh, replacement spring of 1995, this was a carryover. The players struck in uh, August of 94, the strike hadn't been settled and, uh, spring training began with replacement players. And from a strike, uh, from a writer's point of view, it was, it was a little more interesting because spring training can be, uh, while it's enjoyable and relaxing, can be somewhat tedious. There yep. tend to be almost two types of stories. I, I had a good year, so I'm going to try to do what I did last year. Or these are the changes I'm going to make, so I don't do what I did last year. <laughs> and then there are you know new people that come on the team, and, and they obviously get written about, and their stories get told. But I'm, being, I'm simplifying a little bit. But, you know, all of a sudden we had these players who uh, came from uh, nowhere uh, or everywhere. And they were obscure and they were not uh, major league players, but the owners decided that they were going to try to go forward with this scheme, the sham. And to a guy like Baylor, who knew, uh, who, who wore a major league uniform for years with dignity and who knew uh, how hard it was to get to the major leagues and harder still to stay there. He was appalled by this. And there mm-hmm. were times that, many times and he just stayed in his office at high corbett field and he was he's talked about reading two books the art of war i don't remember the uh the uh the uh gentleman who wrote that book um and then there was a book by john hellyer i think it was called lords of the realm which was basically a story a big uh, a, a compilation of um baseball's labor situation up to that point and it just it just bothered him that uniforms with a major league team were being handed out to uh, people and yeah. Buddy Bell, who came here a couple of years later, actually Buddy Bell managed in uh, after Leland's one year in 1999, uh, Dan O'Dowd replaced Bob Gephardt in like September of 99 as the general manager. And he knew Buddy from their days in Cleveland, Buddy had been a coach on Mike Hargrove's staff and Buddy came here too. And Buddy was a guy who'd spent a lot of time in the game and had done good things. And, you know, uh, his dad had played uh, in the major leagues, and he too was just personally uh, uh, nauseated by the fact that um, guys are parading around in major league uniforms who have no business doing so. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Uh, you know, and, and let me ask you one more question, just about about uh, th- those days, and and uh, I'd love to have you back on another podcast so we can talk about you know, things like the Rocktober streak and everything else like that. But, you know, you talked about Dante Bichette and obviously his place in, in Rocky's history. You know, now to see his son, uh, you know, when the baseball season starts back up, he will be one of the players to watch. Uh, you know, is, is it interesting to see how that the players from then, now their sons are, are, are showing their, their skills and as somebody who's seen father and son, what is that like for you as a journalist to kind of see this next generation of baseball players coming? Yeah, I, and I, I lost you there for a second, Kevin, when you said 
but I see. Did, who did you refer to? Would you refer to yeah, uh, Dante Bichette and his son Bo? Oh, Dante Bichette. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Yeah, I can remember after one season going down to Florida. I guess this was before the start of the next season, so it would have been you know winter. I don't know what I was doing, but I remember what the nature of the story was to sort of advance the start of spring training. And I went down to Florida to see uh, Bichette, uh, who was living outside of Orlando, and Galarraga, who I remember meeting uh, at, a, at a golf club in West Palm Beach. He lived in a home on the course. And, uh, you know, Bichette's, uh, I knew Bichette, and I'd met his wife because uh, they were around here for a year or two. And uh, the... Uh, the youngest of his children, Bo, I'm not even sure he was born then. Um, and if he was, I mean, I'm trying to visualize, to, was there some toddler in the house? I don't picture that in my mind. So it's it's fairly amazing to see the, uh, the, uh, the gene pool passed on. And one thing about Dante, you know, he was kind of a, uh, he was kind of a, how to say this, I mean, he was, he was lovable. Uh, he was friendly. He was attentive. Um, and he could be a little forgetful. Mm-hmm. He was a sweetheart. And he loved to talk hitting. He carried Ted Williams's book, The Art of Hitting 300, with him. He read it many, many times. And I'm sure he's not just only relishing, like any father would, in his son's success, but he's also anguishing because he can't dictate the events at home plate um, right. because he's a spectator now. Yep. And, uh, you know, Bo is the youngest of his two sons. And the, uh, the uh, first one, the first son is also named Dante. And he played briefly and finished his career in the Rockies organization. So that's, mm-hmm. a, you know, kind of an interesting balance, sure. if you will. But I thought when you were referring to this question that you were, I didn't hear you, and, and I thought you were maybe thinking of Buddy Bell and his son David Bell, and uh, who's a third generation player. That's, that's um, true. And there's, there's a, a lot of generations here. <laughs> yeah, as is uh, Aaron Boone. Um, but David Bell, who's a, a great fella, and uh, who I got to know when he was playing with the uh, Giants, told a, a, a wonderful, wonderful story. He. Uh, he spent a lot of time with his grandfather, Gus Bell, who was an all-star outfielder, played with the Reds in the 50s, and was a very, very good player. And he spent a lot of time with him because his dad was off playing ball. And David Bell went to Moeller High School, which is where Griffey Jr. went to, and uh, Daryl Boston. Uh, well, I'm not sure if Daryl Boston went there. He's from Cincinnati. But anyway, Moeller's – Barry Larkin did go there. It's a, it's a renowned uh, – high school for turning out uh, baseball and football players. And um, um, in fact, the Rockies have a pitcher who went to Moeller High School, Philip Deal. is a oh, Moeller High there you go. Anyway, I digress. So David spent a lot of time with his grandfather, Gus. They were exceedingly close. And David got called up to the major leagues in 1995. And uh, he was he was with the Indians, who were very, very good then. And he made his major league de- debut in a game against the Tigers. And he pinch hit for Jim Tomey late in the game. And as bad luck would have it, at that very time, Gus Bell, who had some heart issues, was in the hospital in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And as David described it, 
um, you know, his grandfather was a guy that didn't ever like to take an aspirin. And he, uh, he died a few days later. He was not, that, not an old man. He died in his, I want to say he was in his 60s. Oh, wow. But when David was uh, uh, making his major league debut against the uh, Tigers, Gus Bell was able to listen to that game in Cincinnati on the Tiger broadcast. And the great Ernie Harwell, one of the nicest people I ever met, was uh, broadcasting for the Tigers. So there's Gus Bell having this grandfatherly pride and immense satisfaction that even though he's in the hospital, this uh, grandson, whom he's uh, obviously known since birth and spent a lot of time uh, around watching him play, teaching him how to play, made his major league debut. And I remember asking David, what'd you do? And he said, I fly out to write. And I said, well, at least you make contact, make your grandfather happy. So kind of a nice Wow. Time. You know, and, and gosh, it seems like forever since we've had baseball, but just those stories like that that reinforce how baseball is important to families who play and those who are in the stands. Uh, you know, it's just one of the, the many special things of, about this game. And I'm I'm so glad I got to hear some of your stories. And I know our our listeners are as well. Like I said, I'd love to do this again. You know, let's talk about some of those other memorable moments that you lived through uh, covering the Rockies. Yeah, and, uh, I probably could uh, I could probably talk for the rest of the day. And it's, uh, what time are we talking here? We're talking at 2.30 <laughs> in the afternoon. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not bringing up great moments, but there's, these are stories that come to mind. And I probably have a few that are, uh, that are uh, less positive, but they're not so... Uh, not that they couldn't be told, um, but I'm uh, I'm not necessarily. I'll, I'll uh, stop babbling, and uh, thank you for inviting me on, and oh. look forward to talking to you, Kevin. Well, well and, self- and seeing you, absolutely and selfishly, Jack. This is a way for me to reconnect with you, and and I, I miss hearing those stories. And like I said, you and Tracy and Buddy sitting around talking about players. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about him in forever. Uh, you know, and some of the ones that you mentioned today are fall into that. So absolutely. Let's, let's do this again soon. And uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, just know that we will uh, see what we can do about bringing Jack back on to talk uh, some other great moments, great memories, all that good stuff. Uh, But for now, thank you for listening to this. Make sure that you're following us uh, at Rockspile FS on Twitter. And just know we are putting up uh, our goal is a hundred stories this month uh, while there is no baseball. So check out ROX pile.com and we have uh, some things that hopefully you'll want to read but for now kevin henry signing off thanking you for listening to this edition of the rocks file rockies report without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at granger we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.
If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.